Welcome. It's a great pleasure and a great honor to welcome you to this, our opening panel of the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School, a panel entitled Barren Landscapes and Open Spaces. This is, in fact, the first event of the Center's rather full calendar this year, but I'm not going to tempt you or bore you by listing upcoming events. If you're interested, you can find those on our website easily enough. For those of you who are new to this corner of the university, the center is across the street at 42 Francis Avenue. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Charles Stang. I'm professor of early Christian thought here at HDS, and I'm very proud to say the new director of the center. We've been around for a good long while, the center, uh, but we're trying some new things this year. So if you're curious, please feel free to look us up and you can pick up a new brochure on your way out this evening. They're on a table just outside that door. So let me begin by offering an apology on behalf of my colleague, Kimberly Patton, who fell ill today and had to bow out of this evening's conversation. I will miss her contribution enormously, not least because Kimberly was going to speak about the sea, whereas I think the rest of us will speaking mostly about the desert or wastelands. As an homage to Kimberly and to ensure that the sea has its say, I'm going to speak briefly in her stead this evening and about a book on that most famous of seas, the Mediterranean. And I'd be remiss if I were not to thank our Dean, David Hempton, and the staff of the Divinity School, who've graciously allowed us to host this event here at the Sperry Room. And I wish to uh, acknowledge and thank the wonderful staff at the Center, Corey, Ariella Ruth, Matthew, Dory. I hope you know how much I appreciate and depend on your support. I've been pondering how to introduce this panel how to frame the question of the relationship between land and landscape and our religious imagination. I've been wrestling with it because the seed of this panel is something I've been carrying with me for about 20 years, half my life, more or less. <laughs> I can't pretend to speak on this topic without narrating my own investment in it. So you'll have to forgive me as I indulge in the first person singular. But is it really an indulgence, or rather a requirement, to speak of oneself when speaking of the land? A landscape, after all, is from a particular perspective or vantage point. And so I have to begin this conversation with my own, in the hopes that some of you will recognize your vantage points, made clearer by their proximity or distance from my own. We date our lives in different ways, birthdays, holidays, convocations, commencements, around here at least, weddings, divorces, births, and deaths. One of the ways I date my life is to mark the first time I saw the desert. That day cuts my life almost exactly in two. I wasn't expecting it, but my first exposure to the desert undid me. Quote, the desert loves to strip bare. St. Jerome wrote that. 
The desert stripped me bare. But words fail me today as they have for 20 years, because to say that it undid me is at, at most only one half of the story. The decomposition of the self that I experienced at the edge of the desert was accompanied by a profound and peculiar sense of belonging I had not known before. It matters, I think, where this happened. Far away from here, in the hills east of Jerusalem, in a place we sometimes call the West Bank, the very desert into which the Spirit is said to have thrown Jesus after his baptism, a desert where he faced and overcame temptations. So it happened first in those barren hills, and soon after, south of there, in the Negev Desert in Israel, then further south again in the deserts of the Sinai Peninsula, against the backdrop of a mountain famous for its terrifying theophany, and again in the red sands of Wadi Rum in Jordan. It amounted to just a couple of weeks in those open spaces as I prepared to spend Easter week in Jerusalem. But in those weeks, I felt as if the axis of my life shifted, and not slightly. I had come on a pilgrimage to a holy city and found instead that I was called to the surrounding wastes. Alas, life did not, has not permitted me to remain in the desert or even near it. I spent the next many years in study looking for ways to understand what this encounter was. I began to learn Arabic in hopes that I could return to that region. I threw myself into the study of the desert fathers and desert mothers of Egypt, the, the first monks of early Christianity. I read and reread the writings of other outsiders like me who were unexpectedly drawn to the dry and vast expanse of the desert, writers such as T.E. Lawrence and Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I scoured the Quran and Hadith for hints of how the Prophet Muhammad or his early companions understood the desert. And more than anything, I became a student of the Christian mystical tradition, especially the negative mystical tradition, which imagines a practice of clearing away and negation in the hopes of meeting the unknown God in a moment of unknowing. Now I've mined some of these veins for 20 odd years, much of it very happily. And while I've returned to the desert on several occasions and lived at its edge, once in Cairo and against, again once in Jerusalem, I've never panned back to assess how these investigations that were sparked in the wake of that experience of the desert have or have not helped me to heed the call that I heard there. Why was it that that land spoke to me and what was it trying to say? Two women helped me along the way. The first, my wife, I've known nearly 20 years. Second, Terry, I've known for nearly a month. <laughs> From the parched winds of the desert, I returned to the United States to start a Master's of Divinity degree at our rival, the University of Chicago. And there I met my wife on the very first day. And she had been living in the Southwest for several years, just outside Santa Fe in Cordova, if any of you know that town. And the next summer, she introduced me to New Mexico and Utah. And there I found another desert, an American desert. 
I can't really explain what it was like to experience the Southwest for the first time. It blew the, the doors off my barn. It was a second axial shift. Here were deserts issuing me a new call, but in an entirely different idiom, speaking in languages other than my own or, the, or, or those languages I had learned, teeming with other mythologies, deserts through which other peoples moved. And these new landscapes, they were open in part, I knew, because they had been cleared, cleared of peoples by a people that looked like me. Terry came into my life last spring when I learned that she was to be a writer in residence here at HDS and that she and her husband, Brooke, wished to live at the center. She and I sat on either end of a couch last April, I think it was. We spoke about land, about wild land, protected land, land under threat, the peoples of land under threat. We spoke about resources and their extraction, about conservation <clears throat> and expenditure. We spoke about home and exile, fragility and fecundity, and we spoke about politics, which means we spoke about despair. We spoke about death and we spoke about rebirth. It was like the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> In that moment, I realized that I had been carrying this seed for 20 some odd years and that I could plant that seed, even in a barren, barren landscape, with Terry's help. And that's what I'd like to do tonight, to plant that seed, to ask the question, what is it about land and landscape that speaks so powerfully and so intimately to our religious imaginations and sensibilities. Two colleagues immediately came to mind. Kimberly Patton, professor of comparative and historical study of religion, and Kimberly especially for her book, The Sea Can Wash Away All Evils. This book, which I highly recommend to you, examines the environmental crises facing the world's oceans from the perspective of comparative religion and comparative mythology. And my colleague, Matt, Matthew Potts, Associate Professor of Religion and Literature and of Ministry Studies, who wrote a brilliant book entitled Cormac McCarthy and the Signs of Sacrament. If you've read any McCarthy, you know his talent for evoking landscape, be it the scorched, apocalyptic landscape of the road or the deserts of the border trilogy or the Texas-Mexico borderlands of no country for old men. Matt has brought to vivid life the religious dimensions of McCarthy's dark tales, and I thought he could do the same for his fierce landscapes. Looking back on my own first-person entree into this topic of land and landscape and the religious imagination, I feel as if it suffers from a kind of romanticism. Perhaps that's why I've been reluctant all these years to look directly at the sun and have pursued it indirectly. In any case, I'm awash with new questions now, such as, am I projecting onto these landscapes? Are these open spaces empty canvases on which we paint our own portraits? And to what end? Or does the land have its own aims and purposes, its own agency, 
such that it can issue its own call, make its own pleas, its own demands. Why is it so important that the land be barren or empty to fire our imaginations? Is it really barren? Or must one learn to see its abundant life? If it's empty, is that because I cannot see what it's full of? If it is empty, is it because the land has been emptied? Emptied of people and their trace, people who once lived on it and moved through it, or in some cases still do today. And then what does it mean for me to behold that emptiness now? What was it? What was, what is their experience of the land that I have experienced as issuing a call to me? Me, who has never lived according to that land's rhythms or its demands. Who among us, who among our fellow citizens, our neighbors, never gets to see a full horizon or an empty place? And before I move to pity those among us, should I pause to wonder instead what sort of transcendence is on offer in busy places, lands and landscapes teeming with life, cramped places? These self-critical questions, which could be and perhaps should be pushed much further, remind me of a short episode from Terry's most recent and exquisitely beautiful book, The Hour of Land, an episode that will bring some much-needed levity to these introductory words. <laughs> this is from a chapter on the great Teton National Park, and it's in Terry's own voice now. <clears throat> Not long ago, my father and I were hiking to Taggart Lake, a short, lovely walk to the base of the Tetons. As we walked up the trail, we heard a horn blow repeatedly. Around the bend, a man in a Harvard sweatshirt, half crazed with fear, was holding a bear horn out in front of him, pressing the button every 15 seconds or so. A large canister of bear spray hung low from his belt, and numerous bear bells dangled from his backpack. He looked like a one-man marching band. The expression on his face when he met us head-on was one of sheer terror. Good God, man, my father said. You look like you belong in the circus, not in the Tetons. I've been hiking this trail for 70 years and never seen a bear on it yet. Cut the horn. <laughs> I forget what the hiker said in response, but I do recall my father's parting comment. If I were you, I wouldn't advertise where you went to school. <laughs> I laughed for minutes when I read that. Um, and I feel, but I feel a degree of compunction, too. N not because I have ever gone hiking in a Harvard sweatshirt armed with horns and bells, exactly. But I feel compuncted when I wonder whether I might not resemble that young man when I ask after the, the relationship between land and landscape and our religious imagination in the safe 
and privileged context of this university, in the safe and privileged context of academic discourse. Here in this room, under these lights, in these chairs, surrounded by these synthetic materials, laminated particle board and whatnot, do I, do we, look like that ridiculous young man, scared of meeting a real bear? How can we pursue this inquiry with integrity, humility, and openness? Openness especially to the possibility of meeting a real bear. I leave you with two short quotes. The first is from Andrew Harvey. We are saved in the end by the things that ignore us. Permit me to change that quote ever so slightly based on the etymology of ignore, literally to unknow. Perhaps it is that we are saved in the end by the things that unknow us, the things that render us unknown to ourselves and thus open to an unknown God. Terry already knows this. As she insists in the chapter on Big Bend National Park, the desert is not a void. It is my unknowing. Now here's how we will proceed this evening. My colleague Matthew Potts will take the podium, after which I will return. I know you're eager to have me back here. Um, in Kimberly's stead, I promise it will be short. And then we've saved the best for last. Terry will bring us home. After which, we will welcome questions from the crowd. Thank you so much for coming, and again, welcome. Thank you, uh, Professor Stang, and uh, thanks to all of you for being here tonight um, and for inviting me to, to be on this panel. Uh, you know, when, when Charlie went through the sort of the list of landscapes, uh, he said, you know, desert and sea, and, and then he sort of added on wasteland. And I think that was for me, because I'm going to talk about, about, about wastelands. Uh, apocalyptic landscapes is, is what I want to talk about um, tonight for just a few minutes. And I will talk about Cormac McCarthy, as, as Charlie guessed I would when he asked me to do this. But I actually want to start with an, an article that appeared in New York Magazine this summer. Um, it was, I think, late July. Early, it was midsummer. I can't remember the exact date. It was by a man named Damian Wallace Wells. And it was an article that painted a, a very kind of grimly unrelenting picture of our future with climate change. Um, I'm sure some of you saw it. Um, but it basically starts saying if you think it's about sea level rise, you're fooling yourself. And he spends something like 4,000 words talking about all the different highly probable catastrophes that. Uh, that await us in the future. And what was interesting about, I'm not gonna talk exactly specifically about that article, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about sort of reactions to that article. It, the reactions to that article in the media, or at least on my Facebook feed, right, um, were largely about the virtues of counseling despair. Right, there were people concerned that if we, if we counsel despair, what we also counsel is inaction, 
If people feel despair, they will not do anything, and we need people to do something, right? But there's a, another problem with that, which is if you, if you don't say how dangerous things really are, then it also counsels in action, right? If people don't know how serious things are, they don't do anything. But there's also this fear that if we tell them how serious things are, then they won't do anything because they'll be so full of despair. And so what I'd like to do is kind of maybe bracket that binary as unhelpful or, or maybe not, not sufficiently painting the picture of what's possible. And instead, I'd like to ask how an, apoc an apocalyptic landscape, especially an imagined apocalyptic landscape, or a predicted apocalyptic landscape, like this article gave us, how it can be useful, um, how it might help us to reckon with what's coming, whatever form it will take, because we're not sure the form it will take, only that it's coming, and especially how we can respond to what's coming rightly. And that's what I'm going to turn to Cormac McCarthy. So as, as, as uh, Professor Stang said, um, you know, Cormac McCarthy is known as sort of one of our kind of lyrically, you know, violent prophets of destruction, right? In his novels, he writes with a disturbing I mean, eloquence and poetry about e extraordinarily grim and gruesome, um, gruesomely violent things. But he's also this kind of grim painter of American landscapes. Ever since his earliest work, um, his first novel, the, the Orchard Keeper, and his early novels, which were set in Appalachia, were very much pictures of the land, pictures of, pictures of nature and of, of humans' place um, in, that, in that natural world. And then after he moves out of what's called his Appalachian period, he moves into writing Western novels, novels which are, which are placed, as, as, as was mentioned, um, in the American West. And again, the landscapes um, uh, serve a real, a, a real function in, in these novels. Um, but what's interesting, especially, especially in, in, um, in this work, is how the human is placed within these apocalyptic landscapes. How the human is rendered as profoundly vulnerable to natural processes. There's a distance, a narrative distance. The narrative voice almost is distant from the human and sees the human as sort of an, an object moving in the landscape. It's almost like, if you can imagine sort of the, the Hudson River School, but, but really dark and disturbing, right? You know, in the Hudson River School, you see these huge majestic landscapes, and sometimes there's a, a, small, a small figure in the corner, like looking up or something, right? If the clouds were all dark and there was lightning striking the guy, that would be like McCarthy's, <laughs> right? <laughs> McCarthy's landscapes, right? Um, and just for an example, it happens everywhere, but just for an example, I wanna, I wanna show you the end of his first novel, The Border Trilogy. The main character is a, a person named John Grady Cole. And the novel's ending, and everything has gone wrong, as you might have guessed, since it's a McCarthy novel. <laughs> everything has gone wrong, and he has just buried the woman who raised him. And this is what it says. He held out his hands as if to steady himself, or as if to bless the ground there, or perhaps as if to slow the world that was rushing away, and seemed to care nothing for the old or the young, or rich or poor, or dark or pale, or he or she, nothing for their struggles, nothing for their names nothing for the living or the dead. So he held his hands out to steady himself or to bless the ground or to keep the world from rushing away, a world that cared nothing for him. And then a couple lines pass, uh, and he's riding a horse, and, it's, and he's riding into the sunset, like this Western trope, right? To end the novel, riding into the sunset, but not with any of the romanticism that we might expect out of a cowboy riding into the sunset. 
It reads, the, the desert he rode was red and red the dust he raised, the small dust that powdered the legs of the horse he rode, the horse he led. In the evening, a wind came up and reddened all the sky before him. There were a few cattle in that country because it was barren country indeed, yet he came at evening upon a solitary bull rolling in the dust against the blood-red sunset like an animal in sacrificial torment. The blood-red dust blew down out of the sun. He touched the horse with his heels and rode on. He rode with the sun coppering his face and the red wind blowing out of the west across the evening land and the small desert birds flew chittering among the dry bracken and horse and rider and horse passed on and their long shadows passed in tandem like the shadow of a single being, passed and paled into the darkening land, the world to come. And that's how the novel ends. With our main character, our protagonist, literally fading into the landscape, where the elements of the earth become him. His face is coppered. He becomes the dust that accrues, accumulates upon him. And this is the character of much, most of McCarthy's novels, where we have this human figure that sometimes we're allowed to get a little bit close to, sometimes we're allowed to see inside their mind or inside, see some of their emotions, but always, always they're removed again and placed in this natural landscape, and, and, and they fade into it, with an exception. And that's the exception I'm going to discuss mostly with my time tonight. Uh, and that exception is McCarthy's most recent novel, the 2006 novel, The Road, which although there are apocalyptic hints in other of his novels, is a, a purely post-apocalyptic novel. Um, but in this novel, we are, we are within, sort of within the psychology, inside the head of the man who is the sort of protagonist of this novel. So the premise of the novel is that it is this post-apocalyptic wasteland. The landscape we have is waste. Um, uh, it says that there was a long shear of light and a series of low concussions. So we don't know what caused this apocalypse, but it's probably more North Korea than climate change, right? No matter, there is apocalypse. There's, it's cold all the time, it's dark all the time. It seems like it's snowing, but it's not snowing. There's ash that falls from the sky all the time. Um, there's nothing to eat or not much to eat. Um, and the stories of a man and his child, his boy, who are walking down the road, which is why it's called uh, The Road. And they're doing two things as they walk down the road. They're trying to decide if it's worth still living. The man has two bullets left in his gun. And because the food is so scarce, there are sort of marauding bands of cannibals with their catamites who hunt down other human beings for food. So they're trying to decide how long they should stay alive. And the other thing they're trying to do is get to the sea. They have this intuitive sort of instinctive hope. Not even a hope. The hope would be to overstate it or overarticulate it. But for some reason, they are instinctively walking towards the sea. This happens in Appalachia again. He returns to his Appalachian landscape. And he's walking down towards the Atlantic Ocean. They are watching, walking down towards the Atlantic Ocean. And they don't know why, but the, the man just keeps saying to the boy, we're just going to go there. That's where we're going to go. And he tells him what the sea looks like, right? So they're searching for the sea. They're trying to decide whether they should continue living. And then they arrive at the sea and are profoundly disappointed in what they find. This is how it reads. They came upon it, the sea, from a turn in the road, and they stopped and stood with the salt wind blowing in their hair, where they lowered the hoods of their coats to listen. Out there was the gray beach, with the slow combers rolling dull and leaden, and the distant sound of it, like the desolation of some alien sea breaking on the shores of a world unheard of. Out on the tidal flats lay a tanker, half careened. 
Beyond that, the ocean vast and cold and shifting heavily, heavily like a slowly heaving vat of slag and then the gray squall line of ash. He looked at the boy. He could see the disappointment in his face. I'm sorry it's not blue, he said. That's okay, said the boy. And they spent some time at the seaside and they noticed how there are no birds. Think of that, a shoreline with no birds. And they noticed that there are, there are rib cages of large mammals. And, and so there's this, this clue that other mammals have just intuitively also instinctively come to the sea and died there hoping for something. And there are dried sea pods that blow by. No life at all. And the boy goes in for a swim because that's what boys do at the beach. And he, he comes out weeping and he won't tell his father why. So they've arrived at where they were going and what they were looking for is not there. And so they turn around and keep walking and still try to decide how long they should stay alive. So what am I going to do with this? <laughs> so let me, let me, let me uh, show you three more landscapes um, from this. Uh, they're not much better, I'm going to be honest. Uh, three more landscapes from this novel. This is towards the beginning of the novel. They're walking towards the sea, right? This is earlier. They're walking towards the sea, and it says, it took two days to cross that ashen scab land. This is our landscape, an ashen scab land. The road beyond ran along the crest of a ridge where the barren woodland fell away on every side. It's snowing, the boy said. He looked at the sky, a single gray flake sifting down. He caught it in his hand and watched it expire there like the last host of Christendom. So a snowflake falls in his hand like the last host of Christendom. Another scene further on now. He walked out onto the road and stood. So he's walking up to the road and he's looking at the landscape, the silence, the solitaire drying from the earth, the mud-stained shapes of flooded cities burned to the waterline. At a crossroads, a ground set with dolmen stones where the spoken bones of oracles lay moldering, no sound but the wind. What will you say? A living man spoke these lines? He sharpened a quill with his small penknife to scribe these things in slow and lamp black at some reckonable and entabled moment. He is coming to steal my eyes, to seal my mouth with dirt. I'll return to that in a minute, but I want you to pay attention to one word in the beginning, which is solitaire, the solitaire drawing from the earth. And this last one, and this is just before the man dies. Spoiler, it's an old novel, you know. Uh, the man dies towards the end of the novel, and just before he dies, these are the lines we read. They went on, treading the dead world under like rats on a wheel. The night's dead still and dead or black, so cold. They talked hardly at all. He coughed all the time, and the boy watched him spitting blood, slumping along, filthy, ragged, hopeless. He'd stop and lean on the cart, and the boy would go on and then stop and look back, and he would raise his weeping eyes and see him standing there in the road, looking back at him from some unimaginable future, glowing in that waste like a tabernacle. So these are why, I mean, I'm making it more grim, right? These are why I chose these three landscapes to as, as a response, not really a response, but to follow that picture of the sea, is that in each of those three landscapes, this ashen scab land, or the view from the road with the flooded ruins of burned out cities, or this, uh, the, uh, the, the, glowing, the waste where he glows like a tabernacle, there are these, these references to, to the Christian uh, tradition of sacraments. 
the last host of Christendom falls into the man's hand, right? The host is, is what we call the, the element that is blessed at, at, at Christian Eucharist. Solitter is a little bit more obscure. I told you to pay attention to that word solitter, but solitter is the word that the, that the, the mystic uh, Jakob Böhme uh, used to refer to saltpeter or niter, but he also used it in a specific, specific sense in his writing, which was to refer to the material presence of God on earth. Solitter for Böhme is the material presence of God on earth, right? And in this last scene, the man looks into the future and he sees his son glowing in that waste, like a tabernacle. The tabernacle is where in Christian churches we house the reserve element, the presence of, of Christ. Now I have a whole book, as Charlie said, on sacrament, so I'm not gonna belabor the point too much here. But I think that, I think it's important, or the way I wanna read this novel at least, makes it important to note that I don't think that this is just an adornment. Right? I think that some readers of McCarthy, or some readers of these scenes, suggest that the reason these are placed there is to just expose the vacuousness of religion, or the uselessness of these signs and symbols. And one could, that's a possible reading, I'll grant that that's a possible reading, but I think that would limit the possibilities of what the religious can be, or constrain what the uses of religion are. So the most deeply elaborated form of sacramental theology, and the one that's referenced here in these quotations I've given you, is Eucharistic theology. This is the Christian Eucharist, where, where, where bread and wine is blessed, and then there's the belief, at least in many of the Christian traditions, um, and, the, and, and the ones I'm gonna talk about here, where that act of consecration realizes the real presence of, of, of God or of Christ, of Jesus Christ in bread and wine. And there's more to say about than I have time to say now, but what I want to draw attention to here is that that act of consecration, what happens there, what's understood to happen, is that the bread and wine become both a sign, become the sign of what they are. They signify what they are. They refer to the thing which they already are, which is not the way that signs work, if you think about it, right? If I sign my name and I put my name out there, right? One of the things that signifies, especially if I'm signing my name on a document that goes away from me, right? One of the things that signifies is that I am not there. The sign is standing in for me. There's a distance between me and that sign, a distance in space, a distance in time, right? But the unique sign of the sacrament says that this sign actually realizes the thing to which it refers, which is to say that that distance in time and space is collapsed. The distance in space between this thing, this broken thing here, and the holy thing somewhere else, or sometime else, is collapsed and brought together. So to make that more concrete and less abstract, when, when this happens and bread and wine is consecrated, in the Christian theological tradition, we would say that Christ is there. Christ is not somewhere in history, or not in history only, or Christ is not somewhere up in heaven, or not that or there only, but right here in the here and now. The sweet hereafter has come to us right here. The problem is, if you look up and look around, all the same people who were here before are still there. The sweet hereafter doesn't look like it's here, right? It's still the broken, Trump is still president, right? It's still, it's still the same world it was before the sweet hereafter was realized in our, in our presence. And I think actually that is the point. There is a strain of sort of, I would say, a sort of eschatological prejudice or presumption within certain parts of the Christian tradition, right? That it'll all get better someday, and when it gets better, all this suffering will be made worthwhile. 
But I want to read the sacramental tradition sort of against that sense, that one day when it gets all better, all this suffering will be made worthwhile. I think that we actually look for the holiness in the here and now, not later when we get there someday, but in what we have right now. Um, we can see the sacramental tradition, or my reading of the sacramental tradition, which I'll admit is somewhat unique, my reading of the sacramental tradition as undermining this kind of idealism or this kind of delayed gratification, theological delayed gratification, this location of the holy or of goodness somewhere beyond our broken world. Holiness is not a thing that we arrive at. It's not waiting to be found or realized at the end of the road or at the sea when we arrive there. On the contrary, it's right in front of us right in our broken times and right in our broken places. And a particular kind of apocalyptic landscape, I think an apocalyptic landscape like the one McCarthy gives us, is both a test and an expression, I think, of this theology. It's because only when there is nothing to arrive at later, because there is no place, no better place and no better time, that will redeem all this, that the here and now is made to stand on its own for all that it is worth. And that we need to save it and work for it for what it is right now, not what we think it will someday be redeemed into. And what happens in this novel, and I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but what happens in this novel is that we have a couple of moral options after that happens. One is, you know, if, if survival, when long-term survival is no longer a rational goal, not something that we can reasonably expect, one of two things happens. We either rise into aggression and competition and try to take everything for ourselves and make sure we survive as long as possible, right? Which is what some people in the road admittedly do. But there's another thing that can happen. When, when survival is no longer, long-term survival is no longer a rational goal, if that's not what we're living for, if what we're living for is not just more life, then what we're living for is something else. And what emerges in this novel are things like goodness and sharing with those who have less and showing mercy. Because you're not going to save yourself doing anything anyway, so you may as well be good to the people and the world around you while you're here. So this is one answer to this apocalyptic problem of counseling despair if we say too much or say not enough, right? What would it mean to imagine an apocalyptic landscape in such a way that it teaches us how we should treat each other? Or another and more, maybe, uh, to put a finer point on it, how do you take care of something that's dying? Do you ignore it? Or abandon it? Or pretend it's not dying? Or do you care for it? Give yourself to it? And try to love it? And if I have a complaint with this New York Magazine article that, that some of you may have read, I think it's something like this. Or something along these lines, right? These disasters are coming. They are unstoppable. We're not sure what form they will take or which ones they will be, but they're coming. But talking about them is not just a question of whether we should be ignorant or whether we should be desperate. It's also about our responsibility in the wake of those coming things. Our responsibility not necessarily to fix it all, because we can't fix it all. We know we can't fix it all. It's not realistic to think that we could fix it all, but to care for it as it declines. And even more than that, right, that, that, that the, the world to which these disasters will come is not some abstract world, but it's the world we live in, the world which is already structured by all the, all the systems of injustice and oppression that already structure our world 
And so these virtues of care and goodness are going to be even more important, especially for those of us, as Professor Stang said, who happen to be speaking in the halls of a place like Harvard. For example, while Hurricane Harvey was battering Texas this summer uh, and there was flooding, unprecedented flooding, undeniably linked to climate change in our country, there were monsoons in Bangladesh, also undeniably linked to climate change, that killed over 300 people, destroyed 100,000 homes, and affected 41 million people. And while all this was happening, the front page of the newspaper in Dhaka, which is the capital of Bangladesh, the headline was about Hurricane Harvey. We were right to support Texas and Florida. Of course we were right to support Texas and Florida as they recover from these things. But because of Bangladesh's colonial history and its post-colonial present, we should also pay attention to what the future might demand of us who have more. As all of us are visited with disaster, what kind of sharing and goodness and mercy is that going to demand of us? I think what this kind of, what I'm going to call a sacramental apocalyptic, uh, reveals is that this willingness to embrace the certainty of our finitude is both a moral act, but it's also, in fact, a deeply Christian, a deeply Christian act. There are other Christian positions, too, as I said ones that look toward the sweet hereafter, to a sweet hereafter which can redeem all our wrongs, or ones which anticipate a redemption that will reach back from some fully realized future into our broken present and make it all better. And I have to admit that McCarthy avoids this entirely. At the end of the road, he actually says it cannot be made right. It cannot be put back again. But even this kind of apocalyptic sacramentality, I think, comes out of the Christian tradition. There's a story which is probably not true, but should be. Um, about Martin Luther uh, and this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther is said to have been asked uh, what he would do if the world were ending tomorrow. And Luther replied, if the world were ending tomorrow, I would plant a tree in my garden. 500 years after the Reformation, we have been given almost exactly the same dilemma. I hope we plant that tree. I promised, I promised or, or threatened to take the podium again. Um, but honestly, in light of the late start that we had, and also in light of how good Matt's talk was, I don't want to follow it. Um, which is to say, I think I will dispense with my replacement of Kimberly. Um, what I was going to speak about was something I had written for another occasion, which had to do with the sea and the desert, where they meet, and why, why it is um, pe people feel threatened by the desert. But I think in light of the time, wanting to give Terry her time, and wanting to give you all time for questions, I'm going to invite Terry to the podium instead. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie, um, and thank you, Matthew. Uh, I think we're all sitting with what you've presented with us, 
And Charlie, I want to thank you for creating this sense of home through these ideas for me here at the Divinity School. And to you, Dean Hampton, thank you for your presence um, that holds this space for all of us. And to all my colleagues and to the students um, and to my um, family members at the Center of the Study of World Religions, thank you. Um, as a transition, I want to pass this small abalone shell that, that comes to you holding um, burnt sage. And I think more than anything I can imagine, this will bring the desert um, in all of its flourishing back to us. This will just be quietly passed um, as I share some thoughts. While reading our local newspaper, the Moab Times Independent in rural Utah, our desert home of red rocks and ravens, I came across this tidbit in the police report. And maybe that speaks poorly for me, but that's where I love to read. <laughs> I think we learn a lot about our communities. It read, quote, an officer was dispatched on a strange lights in the city call. The officer met with the reporting person who showed the lights to the officer. The officer noted that it looked somewhat like a planet, except it was changing colors, blue, green, red, yellow, etc. The officer noted that the light was way out of his jurisdiction <laughs> and took no further action. What is within our jurisdiction and what is not? What do we choose to act on and what do we choose to ignore? For me, the desert is beyond our jurisdiction and what we do choose to ignore. Hand on stone, patience. Hand on water, music. Hand raised to the wind. Is this the birthplace of inspiration? It's strange how deserts turn us into believers. I believe walking in a landscape of mirages where you learn humility. I believe in living in a land of little water because life is drawn together. And I believe in the gathering of bones as a testament to spirits that have moved on. If the desert is holy, it is because it is a forgotten place that allows us to remember the sacred. Perhaps this is why every pilgrimage to the desert is a pilgrimage to the self. There is no place to hide, and so we are found. In the severity of a salt desert, I am brought down to my knees. My imagination is fired my heart opens and my skin burns in the passion of these moments. I will have no other gods before me. Wilderness courts our souls. When I sat in church throughout my growing years, I listened to teachings about Christ in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, reclaiming his strength where he was able to say to Satan, 
get thee hence. And when I imagine Joseph Smith kneeling in the sacred garden, sacred grove of trees as he received his vision to create a new religion in America, I believed their sojourns into nature were sacred. Are ours any less? There is a Mormon scripture from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses 44 through 47, that I carry with me. The earth rolls upon her wings, and the sun giveth his light by day, and the moon giveth her light by night, and the stars also give their light as they roll upon their wings in the glare glory in the midst of the power of God. Unto what shall I liken these kingdoms that ye may understand? Behold, all these are kingdoms, and any man who hath seen any or the least of these has seen God moving in all his majesty and power. The moon, the stars, the heavens in the desert call our gaze upward. Quote, Night had come that she loved of all times, night in which the reflecting in the dark pool of mind shine more clearly than by day. It was not necessary to faint now in order to look deep into the darkness where things shaped themselves and to see in the pool of the mind. Virginia Woolf, Orlando. Quote, I have always loved the desert. One sits down on a desert sand dune, sees nothing, hears nothing. Yet through the silence, something throbs and gleams. Antoine de saint Exploré. What is this that throbs and gleams? The heart is an organ of fire, Michael Andante says in The English Patient. And so is the desert. It burns our pretenses away as we fall in love with this landscape of the imagination that is real, that is hot, that is vast and thorny and alluring. It is an erotics of place. We remember that our body and the body of the earth, there is no separation. Mary Austin in the land of little rain understood how the wildness of the desert uncramps our souls. Quote, Come away, you who are obsessed with your own importance in the scheme of things, and have got nothing you did for, not for, and have got nothing you did not sweat for. Come away by the brown valleys and full-bosomed hills to the even-breathing days, to the kindliness, earthliness, in this land of little rain. The desert is nothing but the dreaming of water. Water, water, water. There is no shortage of water in the desert, but exactly the right amount, a perfect ratio of water to rock, water to stand, sand, ensuring that wide, free, open, generous spacing among plants and animals, homes and towns and cities, which makes the arid west so different from any other part of the nation. There is no lack of water here, unless you try to establish a city where a city should not be. Edward Abbey, Desert Solitaire. There are rules in the desert. Pay attention. Adapt or perish. Face to face with a spitting rattlesnake, the only thing you have to negotiate is your escape. 
desert strategies are useful. In times of drought, pull your resources inward. When water is scarce, find moisture in seeds. To stay strong and supple, send a taproot down deep. Run when required, hide when necessary. Do not fear darkness, it's where one comes alive. Cynicism, cynicism flourishes in air-conditioned rooms. Like any true place, the desert is a risk. Back into a barrel cactus and you're going to get hurt. But touch its yellow flowers with petals like wax and pain from its needles lessens. Our fear of being touched removes us from a sensate world. The distant self becomes the detached self who no longer believes in anything. Awe is the moment when ego surrenders in wonder. It is most occurring for me in the desert. This is our inheritance, the vast beauty before us, the horizon, the bitten horizon, where heat waves rise like spirits found. We cry, we cry out. There is nothing sentimental about facing the desert bare. The skeleton of a snake, picked clean by a shrike, hangs from a fence post as a necklace of bones. Tohono O'odham poet Ophelia Zepeda has pointed out that rosaries and Hail Marys don't work out here. Quote, you need a new kind of prayer, she says, many prayers to negotiate with this land. Lily Alberto Uria shares that story. To be in relation to everything around us, below us, above us, earth, sky, bones, blood, flesh, sand, is to see the world whole, even holy. What I can tell you this evening as a resident of America's red rock desert and wilderness is that there is alongside this beauty a deep and abiding violence that continues to be perpetrated on these fragile, sacred lands. Bears Ears, Canyonlands, Arches, Zion, Bryce, Capitol Reef, Grand Staircase, Escalante. These are not places of abstraction. They are real, and we know them by name. Our desert national parks and monuments in Utah, I can tell you, are under siege. And it is difficult to be here, I must tell you. I feel as though I have abandoned my own blood. Donald Trump's executive order on April 26, 2017, called for a review of 27 national monuments in this country. Most have survived that review. Bears Ears has not. I believe it is because of its spiritual power. Background and then a story. Bears Ears is a landmark, two buttes separated that celebrate and resemble Bears Ears. It has always been a place of healing for many, many tribes in the American Southwest. For close to a decade, tribal leaders from the Hopi, Navajo, 
Ute, Mountain Ute, and Zuni nations have come together in a powerful plea to protect these lands. They are the lands where the an their ancestors' bones are buried. They are the lands where their ceremonies are performed. They are the lands where their medicines are secured. And they will tell you that on any given day, you can hear the voices of the ancient ones singing through the red rock canyons, sandstone canyons, rising upward like praying hands. We are not just protecting these lands for our people, but all people, Jonah Yellowman, a Navajo medicine person and spiritual leader said to me recently, and I wanna share with you a quick story. A few years ago, Jonah came to our home. It was a great blessing. We had a group of students there from the Environmental Humanities Program where I was working at the University of Utah. When he came into the house, we opened the door, nine o'clock in the morning, coyotes started howling. That never happens in the morning. Unfazed, he sat down and he blessed our home. In Diné, in Navajo, and then in English, and he blessed each of us in the room. He then, surprisingly, began to tell us his story of how he became a medicine person, how the desert landscape had given him these powers. And as someone who has worked with Navajos closely and studied their spiritual traditions, he did something I have never seen before nor heard. He talked about the practice of crystal gazing and how it can look into a body's soul and heal. We were uncomfortable. At one point, a young woman named Anna said, why are you telling us this? And he said, because it is time. And then he said, it is time to go outside. We walked outside. We live in Castle Valley, a desert hamlet, surrounded by an erosional landscape. And there, just resting above the horizon, that bitten horizon, was a horizontal rainbow. I have lived in the desert all my life. I have never seen that. I turned to Jonah and I said, is this unusual? And he said, yes. And I said, what does it mean? And he said, it means that the twins are with us, child born of the waters and monster slayer. They have traveled here. They are with us. This is the kind of landscape that fosters the spiritual imagination. This is how the desert reminds us what it means to be human in an inhuman world. The Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition asked President Obama to hear their voices and establish the Bears Ears National Monument where hundreds of thousands of artifacts remain in the Grand Gulch area near the Four Corners where Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado share that common boundary point. President Obama heard them. And on December 28, 2016, Bears Ears National Monument was established. The first of its kind where native people will enter into a co-management and cooperative agreement with marrying traditional knowledge with Western science, where tribal leadership will work in tandem with federal agencies, the BLM, the Forest Service, and the National Park Service. This is historic, a clasp of hands across time. A rapprochement. I urge you to go online and read the beautiful language of this proposal, this proclamation. Four months later, as you know, 
the executive order for President Donald J. Trump with Utah's Senator Orrin Hatch. This review was declared where these lands, sacred lands, will be reduced and rescinded. In his words, Donald Trump, land stolen from the American people. That this administration is hell-bent on returning. Those are his words, not mine. Our public lands are our public commons. I hope someone will remind him of that. Today, it's now set Bears Ears to be radically reduced or gutted. And just last month, Secretary of the Interior said as much or as little strategic in his silence. Bear with me a few more minutes. Why? Why Bears Ears? Because Bears Ears is a place of energy, spiritual energy, like so many of our deserts. It is also a place of fossil fuel energy. The oil and gas companies with their rigs and frack lines alongside the coal industry can hardly wait to take a fecund landscape and create a barren one. If you were to take a raven's point of view at this moment in time of our desert lands in the United States of America, in the American Southwest, I would, you would see that it looks like an exposed nervous system due to the fossil fuel development. Gas flares, toxic slag pools, an aggressive infrastructure on fragile lands that has raised the desert and will continue to do so in spite of the warnings and reality of climate change. I think of the poet Richard Shelton, whose last lines in Requiem for Sonoran read, Oh, my desert, yours is the only death I cannot bear. Before coming to Divinity School, I made a pilgrimage down to the reservation, down to Bear's Ears, to be with some of the tribal elders. And I asked Willie Gray Eyes, one of the community leaders, what to do with my anger. And he said, Terry, it can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. Our American deserts have always been the sites of the sacred and the profane. Uranium mines in Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona, to the Nevada test site near Las Vegas, where nuclear bombs were detonated above ground and below for decades. Half of my family is dead because of those nuclear tests. Our deserts are now the sites of nuclear waste, storage dumps, and wars all over the world. My prayer is this, that we might turn our personal and collective spiritual imaginations toward restoration on this anniversary of the Reformation, as we think about how to reclaim our deserts as places of pilgrimage. It is time to go outside. Can we imagine a nuclear guardianship program designed to take care of the waste that will remain for tens of thousands of years? Can we revision, reimagine, re-envision deserts as places of healing grace and instruction rather than battlegrounds for petroleum? Perhaps this is our next work as present and future desert fathers, mothers, and children. Our deserts are not barren landscapes until we make them so. 
The question must we ask, must be asked, how, why are we cutting ourselves off from the very source of our creation? We are not talking about real estate. We are talking about the body of the beloved. Can we really survive the worship of our own destructiveness? The desert breaks us open to a new way of being. Call it an erosion of the self. The desert reminds us of its in glorious indifference, and it is beautiful. The desert is not a void. It is my unknowing. One day, this landscape will take the language out of me. take this opportunity to let those of you who <laughs> need to leave, leave. You've already <laughs> leaving. Goodbye. Thank you for coming. Matt, Terry, thank you so much for this. Uh, I'm without words. Um, but I imagine some in the audience have some words that they'd like to share. So here's what we'll do. We have um, microphones. Who has our microphones? You have our microphone. One there, one there. Thank you so much. These are um, these folks will kindly help us. Uh, if you are interested in asking a question, making a comment, please raise your hand. I will call on you, but please wait until you have a microphone in hand before you speak, so that we can record this. So, who would like to ask a question? Yes, ma'am. Um, first, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, this wasn't um, a lecture or a presentation or even an event. It was uh, something different than that. I can't describe it, but my question is, um, uh, Professor Potts and Terry, I heard something uh, common in, in what both of you said, and that's just, and it, and, it, and it feels like something different, something new, which is um, a resignation that we are on the other side of something now. And that um, we're talking about learning from our huge mistake, right? Um, and it makes me very sad. Um, to know, to hear that uh, we're on the other side of it now. We're not talking, I mean, neither one of you talked about um, environmental activism, right? Not necessarily. Um, you talked about what we can learn from an apocalyptic landscape, what we can learn from what we've undone. So I don't know if that's a question or not. Thanks, uh, Gretchen. Um, I guess one thing I would say is that I, uh, 
I think you've accurately <laughs> described my remarks. Um, I, there is a, I do believe that, that, that the, I don't want to use the language of resignation, right? I think that, I think that a, threshold, a threshold has been crossed. I think that there are further thresholds that could be crossed, right? Um, but I do think that at least part of what, um, what is called for is something like grief. At, at what has been lost or what will be lost. Right? And grief can be a profoundly religious activity. And grief is not resignation, I don't think. It's something else. Um, and, and ironically, I think, maybe not ironically, that's not the right word, but, but I think that whatever activism is, I think, I think some activism is um, uh, required of us. Um, it seems to me the habits of grief will be the ones, the habits that grief, the forms that grief takes in this situation uh, will be a form which is largely congruent with the kind of environmental activism that is required of us, right? And so it is in resignation. To actually, to, to grieve for what has been lost is to care for it deeply, and to care for it deeply will be to call upon us to do things to care for it as it dies, as it lives, as it lingers, whatever it will be, because the future is not set, right? This is the other thing that I didn't quite say in my remarks, but. You know, why does this, why do this man and the boy keep walking down the road? Not because they think it's gonna end well, but because they think that they could, there still is goodness to be, to, be, to be squeezed from each day, right? And it's worth staying alive one more day if that can be shared, right? And I, I think that's the form that our grief is, is going to have to take. That, that's what I think, but yeah. Thank you for your question, Gretchen. Grief dares us to love once more. And there are very few places, I, I must be honest with you, where I feel I can talk this bluntly. Because you hold the, the spiritual capacity to hold these things. So I told the truth as I know it. As I said yesterday, um, a friend of mine at a dinner party recently said, Terry, you're married to sorrow. And I said, no, I just choose not to look away. I think it is about presence. I think that's what Matt was talking about, to be present in this beautiful, broken world. And finding beauty in a broken world is creating beauty in the world we find. I think that's what we're saying. There is no hope without action. And I think this is an action to tell the truth as we see it, to bear witness. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, I heard a, a different piece of this about um, having to let grow, go of the idea of being able to control what's going to happen and that the desert is still powerful enough to us for us to understand that we cannot control it and um, two images come to mind one is something i read recently because of the luther year and i don't know a lot about luther but that he had to let go of his, um, his obsession 
with earning his own salvation, and that when he finally did admit that he could not earn it, he was then free to be loving and kind to other people because he was no he could no longer be absorbed about saving himself. Um, and um, the other image is something from longer ago that this country, people, European people came to this country and were so terrified and had such a need to get the wilderness on, into control that they could not begin to love the land until they ceased to fear it so intensely. And that we're really stuck in that sense of the control of the land that keeps us safe. Our control keeps us safe. And what you're saying is we no longer have that over the desert or the sea. I'm kind of, I would love to hear a few more words about the sea after all this flooding that we, you know, the power of water is greater than we have known. But I, I that's. Thank you. Yeah. Do either of you wish to respond or should we? You remind me of a story. Um, I've always believed if we listened to the land, we would know what to do. And I don't mean that sentimentally or idealistically, but I think we have become extremely ignorant and arrogant about the land. And to be able to marry or wed or weave um, an ecological literacy with spiritual contemplation I think is really important at this moment in time because we don't know where we are. And the story that I will just quickly tell is I remember when um, this would have been in the late 1980s, early 90s, um, the Department of Energy was looking for a site for a nuclear waste depository, repository. And they settled on um, Six Shooter on Lavender Canyon, um, just adjacent to Canyonlands. Those of us who know this country were appalled. And uh, the woman who drew the maps was coming to do a ground-truthing exercise. And a friend of ours, Glenn Lathrop, picked her up at the airport and bypassed where the meeting was and said, it's OK if you're a little late. Mm -hmm. And he took her out to the vantage point on Canyonlands at the Needles Overlook. And he said, there, right there, is where your repository is. And she pulled out her map, blank in that spot, and she said four words. I had no idea. That's what we're talking about. She actually went back and reconfigured where this might go. Um, we don't have accurate maps. I'll just say uh, one word. Um, so to, to your question, um, um, but also a, a bit about you know, we've mentioned the current presidential administration. Um, th there's a theologian, uh, uh, late 20th century theologian uh, named Johann Baptist Metz who, who wrote a bit about sacrament. And, and he wanted to insist that this, the, the bread in the Christian um, uh, ritual of, of Holy Eucharist, he said, is a sign of death. 
not of life, right? And the reason he, the reason he did that is he said because because thinking too much of he was worried that when when food as a resource becomes something to be competed over so that we can live more, what that leads to is winners and losers, to use the language of our, of our president, right? Who wins and who loses? And who do I need to defeat, right? Or in the case of the road, really dramatically, literally consume in order that I might live, right? But when instead the sign is, and this maybe relates to this question of grief, when instead it seems a sign of death, that we all share the same fate, right? Then we can start to cultivate sort of the practices of care. Instead of competing for limited resources, we can develop practices of care and compassion for one another in this place of where we are undone by the, by the world around us, right? Um, moving away from the idea of winners and losers, some win, some lose, right? Towards a, a di idea of where we care for each other in the process of moving through this finite life. Phil, the back. <clears throat> As I uh, listened uh, this evening, I had the voice of David Attenborough in my head, uh, thinking of all these amazing animal documentaries I've seen in which he describes the desert as teeming with life. I couldn't help but think about part of my awe of the desert being in awe of these creatures mm -hmm. that find such creative, amazing ways to live in ways that we cannot. I wonder if that teeming with life, that those, those amazing creatures uh, have any bearing for any of you in how you think about the desert. I have another story. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll make this quick. No, but you know, Brooke was gone one night and I was in the desert home alone. And I couldn't sleep and I'd just been uh, handed, someone had mailed me these different soundscapes of, around the earth. And so I, I put on the Arctic, it was pretty quiet. Um, I put on the jungle, it was too foreign. And I thought, you know, I'll just put on the desert, see what, what they come up with. And I had the light turned on very, um, it was low light. And I put on the sound of the desert. And all of a sudden, I don't know why I turned, and this immense black widow came out of, of the bookshelf you know, just from behind the bookshelf, and just sat or, you know, was on the wall, just perched on the wall. And I felt such a camaraderie with, <laughs> with that black widow. And I promise you, we listened to those sounds of the desert um, for probably 20 minutes. And then when it was over, she just crawled back in, you know? But I feel like we live in a world of eyes and we don't even know that they're around us. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the great privileges of living in the desert is eye shine, where you learn the eye shine of deer red, you learn the eye shine of, of mountain lion is green, you learn the eye shine you know, of, of javelinas, you hear their patent leather footprints on the slick rock, um, or that ringtail cat may be nearby, or great horned, horned owl. So I think we live in a, in a world of other. It's my greatest joy. I, I won't say much in response uh, to, to that or to that, that great story. Uh, 
but only to say that there's, there's this one moment in the road, actually, where there is that, that the man speculates that there is still life somewhere that's, that's still thriving or indifferent to what's going on in the surface of the world. Um, and it happens in the sea. He, when they get to the sea, he looks out across this gray ocean and the ash rain falling on the horizon. And he imagines two things. He imagines, perhaps, on some other continent, another man and a boy standing below a sun that does not care for them. That's the way he puts it, right? But then he also imagines under the deep somewhere, giant squid with huge eyes like saucers, float, or like, it says running like trains through the deep and just sort of indifferent to what's going on on the surface. The idea that and the, when you spoke about the eyes everywhere, that he, what, the, what he focuses on here is the, the eyes of this giant squid still, and life still teeming in these depths protected from, at least in this version, protected from what's going on on the surface. Yeah. Do you remember that passage? Um, and I don't. Yeah. But in McCarthy, where um, he feels animals all around him, or the character does, yeah. that that would pull back the eye sockets of the stars. No, I don't. It's in Blood Meridian. It's in Blood Meridian. You sent it is it? to me. Yeah. Is it? Uh, the tree is on fire, and it's surrounded by. The oh animal, yeah. All these exactly. animals. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. yeah. It's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Um, Hold on. Wait, wait for the <laughs> mic. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I, I wanted to thank you all so much for creating this space and speaking in a way that I often don't hear on this campus, and I'm so grateful for that. And sort of in some of, I moved from some of the remarks and what you're saying, and Terry, the story that you just said about the Black Widow makes me want to offer this story that was given to me this summer. I spent the summer standing in a canyon not very far from where you and your dad met that Harvard man. And I was standing um, in awe of and watching these female mason spiders, Castanaria tewanoticus, that were discovered in 2010 by a young woman at Berkeley. And we were there to film them. These spiders, they make a pearly, shimmery egg sac, which they put right on the rocks in these canyons. And they then spend the next, well, my cameras would overheat past midday because you know that rock temperature gets so hot, 122, 136. But she would keep working. And she carries 300 to 500 objects with her jaws and builds a mound on top of her eggs. And it makes me wonder, what do we carry? And what will we build? And standing, watching these spiders, these females in this hot canyon, I just felt like sharing that with you when you said your companionship with the, and I feel like we can all learn from these females. What are we building for our next generation? Thank you. Thank you. Wow, it's a wonderful story. I'm sure you had your hand up back there. Um, thank you. I think we spent a lot of time, and in, in the religious imagination of the desert, it's always sort of, it's harsh and it's beautiful and there's a lot of distance often in that language. And I think we talked a little bit in the comments about um, the desert as a place of pilgrimage or a place where you go to be discomforted or inspired. Um, so this is for Terry, but if either of you wanna jump in on how do the spiritual possibilities of the desert change when it's, when it's your home, when it's mm -hmm. not the place that's distance and awe-inspiring, but where you like go to sleep every night. Yeah, that's my question, too, because it's never, it's never been my home. It's such a great question. Um, joy and anger housed in community. 
Um, you know, I think about Emily Dickinson. Life is a spell so exquisite, everything conspires to break it. How can we not respond? Um, our community responds. When you have a nuclear waste repository that's near your home, you respond. You're also in conversation about then, if not here, where? And what are other alternatives? Um, we're all fighting for bear's ears. Um, close to 700,000 comments were sent into the Department of Interior. If they believe in the open space of democracy, that's going to be difficult to ignore and justify that. Um, so, you know, my husband and I, we, we bought oil and gas leases, as I said. It was our act of civil disobedience done legal because we had a friend, Tim DeChristopher, who is an alum from this distinguished divinity school um, who served two years in prison because there is no hope without action. Um, and so I think we just keep building on the actions of others, um, trying to hold the ground, hold the ground, hold the ground. And what I can tell you as a lifelong resident of Utah, um, the tribes are leading the way and we are following them. And they are bringing a depth and a spiritual gravity and knowing that we have never encountered before. So the violence that is happening now, I think is changing all of us. And that happens, I think, in all of our homes. It's not a vacation. I'm sorry, Terry, to cut, cut you off of that sense. Uh, Sarah, one, one last question, I think, and then we can adjourn. This is a, a bit of political philosophy uh, about the oppression of the earth and the oppression of people over time. And for me, I think of patriarchy. That's the word that I get angry about myself, this kind of notion of arrogance of men. How do you both, how do you three, but how do you, particular Terry and all of you, think about that in the context of our spiritual democracy or our choices for retribution in the future? How do we deal with this connection that the, the earth is oppressed the way we oppress each other? And until we change that notion of oppression, we cannot be, in a sense, liberated to live in the earth. And so I'm just curious how you view the history of, 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 of these oppressions working together. I think very small, and I think through story. And again, I'm gonna close with the story and then turn the microphone to Matt and close with beloved Charlie. Um, there's a woman named um, because I haven't located, uh, her name is Sue, and it'll come to me in just a second. Um, she's a biologist at, uh, the chief botanist actually, at Yosemite National Park. And last year, as you know, was the centennial. Um, if there's ever a landscape with a complicated history, it's Yosemite. Um, the very people that, settled, that um, lived there were displaced in the name of a national park, as you know. Anyway, she was every so often, uh, once a week, 
as often as she can, she walks through the Mariposa Grove, where the big trees are, the giant sequoias. And just as a, as a pleasure, as, a, as an unwinding, as an act of, of reverence. But one time, as she was walking through, she heard something. And what she heard was, we are suffering. We are suffering. We are dying. And she thought, am I going mad? And she kept on walking. And then she heard again, in the language of her heart, we are suffering. We are suffering. We are dying. And she looked up at the big trees, and she thought, I know they're stressed because of drought. I know they're stressed because of fire. But it was deeper than that. And she was disturbed. And she went back, and she lived with that for a couple of weeks. And then she called together a team of her uh, other fellow biologists, and she asked for a study to find out what the health of the big grove, the big trees were in the Mariposa Grove. What she found out is that, yes, they were stressed um, because of drought, but more than that, they were struggling, they were suffering, and they were dying because of a hundred years of humans tamping down on their roots. The roots were being crushed. They thought about what they could do, and they came up with a radical proposal to end this oppression of the earth. One example, that they would remove all of the pavement, miles, that this place, this sacred place, would no longer be a place of entertainment with trolleys and buses and tourists, but rather it would be a place of reverence, retreat, and respect. She took it to the park superintendent. He listened. They took it to the regional representatives. They listened. And for the last five years, they gave the Mariposa Grove a breathing space. No tourists, no trolleys, and they took out these miles of asphalt. The trolleys are gone. The buses are gone. And there is a sign now when tourists come by foot Listen, the trees are speaking. That's one woman with her gift who listened, who created a radical proposal of restraint and stopped the oppression of that particular place. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Oh, wow. I, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is I actually, I feel again compuncted by your question because I feel as if what we have done and what we are doing to the earth does relate deeply to patriarchy. Not everyone agrees with that. I feel it deeply profoundly that this has something to do with how men have organized societies. I know I'm speaking in wildly broad generalizations, but to instantiate it a bit, I think about the patriarchy of my own tradition, the Christian tradition, which I think runs deep. And I don't think there's any easy fix to it. There's no quick fix to this. 
it could be the spine <laughs> in it. And how do you transplant a spine? Um, and I don't, I think it afflicts other traditions as well, but I'm not going to speak on that because I should speak out of my own. And I don't have any great answers to how we combat it other than to say, to echo Terry and say, act small. And I think about my daughters. I think about what they face. I think about what's incumbent upon me as their father. I think about this place, because I'm here every day. I think about how am I reinscribing patriarchy. I think about my relationship with students, um, colleagues. Um, and I would say that if I ever had any doubt that um, race runs as deep as a, mal like a malady in us, I think the last year has purged me of that, any, any sense that that's not urgent. And um, I don't think it's productive to weigh which is the more urgent or the deeper, but I feel them both. Um, and maybe I feel them, I shouldn't say maybe, I certainly feel them more acutely and I, again, I feel most compuncted because, well, I'm a white man. Uh, and so in some sense, this is, uh, this is our legacy. That's a bleak way to end a panel. <laughs> but I think I want to just return to something that uh, Matt said in closing, which is um, grief is not resignation. Grief is not resignation. Things are already dying around us. We have killed them, and we will continue to kill. Things, more things are going to die. There is no doubt, I think, about that. That article is not pulling any punches, nor should we pull punches anymore. But I think we need to cultivate the arts of living unto death. And the truth of the matter is, that's just what it means to live, right? Like, last time I checked, we all die. And uh, no one, I think, in this room believes that in the long scale of geological or planetary time, humanity is never-ending. So we are facing death, however proximate. So we better get busy about the arts of living unto death. All right. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everyone.